Kuzner. Crash, that could be four. That's hit like a rocket. That's four. Hit it hard. There's Mike Wall down and he won't get it. That's the level. What kind of shot is that? That is unbelievable. Only 14 deliveries. Is he going to do it again for South Africa? The man who really has been in such sparkling form in this World Cup. Hello and welcome to the Dilipram All-Rounder podcast. It's the US edition. I'm in New York. It's the 24th of October and it is around 11 p.m. The World Cup's obviously happening at the moment and we've got a very special episode. My guest today is Sanjay Ramaswamy. Sanjay, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, brother. Sanjay, we are in New York. You've moved across, was it four or five years ago? It's correct, four and a half years ago. So for people that haven't spoken to you or met you before, I always ask two questions. The first question is, God's given you the talent to be a superstar athlete. Which, which body are you choosing? Probably soccer or football. I did love cricket growing up. We can get into that, but football probably now. And for Arsenal? For Arsenal. Lovely. And who's the GOAT? Messi. Any reasons or just Messi, the name itself? I mean, I've had a lot of conversations about it in the United States. A lot of people think it's Jordan, Tiger has come up a bit. But for me, I think in terms of longevity and in terms of how successful he's been, winning the World Cup for me really made me think that Messi's the GOAT. Very good. But obviously we're speaking about the 99 Cricket World Cup today. Um, Do you want to just briefly talk about your love for cricket um, and how you got into it? Growing up in the Dilip Ram household, I was the younger brother to yourself. Um, and growing up, we played a lot of cricket in our backyard. Um, our dad got us into it. I think when we, were, when we were about five or six years old, I used to bowl at you in the backyard. Um, you used to bat for hours and hours on end. I would struggle to get you out, would think that I've gotten you out many times, but uh, would never actually get to bat myself. But bowling at you in the backyard um, and playing for hours and in the backyard made me love the sport, playing it. And from an early age was watching a lot of cricket too. So it was the one sport that we'd all watch on the TV, me and you um, with Appa, uh, our dad. So from an early age, watching a lot of cricket, watching India getting absolutely roasted um, in the cricket a lot <laughs> of the times. Um, but the summer uh, was spent watching cricket, playing cricket, sweating it out for hours and then bowling. Um, and then that just continued on. Do you remember much of the 99 Cricket World Cup? I remember quite a few things. Um, I was seven. Um, so I do just remember some of the fleeting moments uh, of of group games. The semi-final for me is one that I, I do remember quite vividly. Um, I remember staying up late into the night watching it. You would probably argue that I'd slept for a little bit of the second half of the game, but I, I did watch it. I don't uh, remember if we watched it live or not. I remember watching the first innings, but I don't remember if we ended up watching it live or we saw our mum and dad, we call them Amba and Appa, they 
recorded the second innings and then we watched it in the morning, not knowing what the result was. But that's what we're talking about today. 99, some of the key moments, there was the Y2K scare because we're coming up to 2000. Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets came to the US. Wayne Gretzky was inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame and Albert Einstein was named Person of the Century by time. So those four things clearly, for anyone listening, we're living in a different time in 99. The world was a different place. A lot of people would say it was a simpler time and a better time, but that's the context in which we're in, in which we're talking about Australia, South Africa, and that semi-final. Robin, Robin Smith, or uh, if it's, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, is it Smith or Smythe? But Robin Smith, uh, I think he's an English journalist. He wrote a fantastic article on this semifinal match and he said it's the unimprovable game. And I think that's a perfect way to describe that semifinal. It had everything a cricket fan or a sports fan would want in a match. It had two teams that were probably. I wouldn't, I would say South Africa was at the peak of their powers in 99 and Australia was slowly coming to the peak of their powers as a one day unit. It had fast bowling, it had spin bowling, it had great batsmen on both sides. I think the, the title unimprovable match is, a, is an apt way to describe it. Yep, for sure. I mean, I remember watching a lot of South Africa growing up and thinking that they were just an amazing team. They had a batting lineup that batted very deep, a bowling lineup that was as good as any, and a fierce and competitive team that was very similar to the Australian team, the Australian Test cricket team. I don't have too many memories of the Australian ODI cricket team growing up, but we all My know memory is just Bevan. Is Bevan, yeah. That's that's one name that I remember too. But you 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 aptly pointed it out. A great set up for the game because two teams that were very evenly matched yeah and that article robin talks about how the 99 match that semi-final it he says it started in 1994 and the reason he says that is is because south africa after the apartheid and when they started resume when they resumed playing cricket they had a very famous series in australia in 94 where the South African team probably should have won that series, ended up, the test series was drawn one all, and they lost the one day series in the final 2-1. And the reason they say it started it was because that was the year in which a lot of people will say they started choking or choking in big, big games because they lost the one day series there. They then come back to Australia in 97, they lose the one day series in the final despite winning all around Robin games and winning the first final. And then they developed this tag, which rightly or wrongly was placed on them as not being able to perform in the big stages. So this game, when they, when they came into the 99 World Cup, they wanted to right that wrong. And they were showing that they were the best team coming up to that semifinal. Yeah, they were clearly the best team in the tournament. They had the strongest team, the deepest batting lineup, the best bowling attack. Um, you know, Alan Donald coming in as, as first change is devastating. They had, you know, a great setup in terms of the opening batsman. They had a very settled middle order lineup. It was as good as a, a, an ODI team. And I think the, the real blueprint of how South Africa adopted their ODI 
team for the next 15 years was built off the late 1990s. Yeah. And that's from a South African perspective. The Australian perspective is somewhat different. In 99, Australia is at the peak of their powers, I think, in, a test, in, in, in the test forum. Uh, under Steve, or Steve Ward just had replaced Mark Taylor as captain. They were a very strong team. They were beating teams left, right and centre in, in test matches. They'd just come from uh, beating the West Indies. Um, well, they, they drew, drew in, it drew right. in the Caribbean, but um, they're showing a lot of form from a one-day perspective. But a lot of their players coming into 99, coming into that World Cup, had played a lot of cricket and so were quite... I would say fatigued and were keen to go back. There was a lot of um, chat within the team about just missing home and being away from family for so long. They talk about Shane Warne. He actually spoke about missing his, um, I think it was his second child's birth to be at the World Cup when Australia played New Zealand. And Steve Waugh was talking about the pressures that he was facing as a skipper of a, of a one-day team. Just by way of context, the World Cup, it was in, the 99 World Cup was in England. It was the seventh edition of the Cricket World Cup. This one had 12 teams. Um, they played a total of 42 matches. The group stages were divided into two groups and then it went into subsequently the Super Sixes, which is where South Africa and Australia first played, which we can talk about. And then we get into the semifinals. So I want to basically go into hot seat, Sanjay. First one I had was captaincy and the reason i had captaincy was steve war came into that uh came into that semi-final i think under the gun he had just had a chat with trevor Holmes, who was the chief selector at the time i don't know if trevor Holmes was a cricketer but trevor Holmes had basically told him what's the effect of if you don't win this world cup or if you don't make it to the sem- uh, semis or finals you're out of a job and i think that drove him and that probably was the reason why he scored that magnificent high century against South Africa just four days before in the, in the Super 6 game. Yeah, great innings. I think he's remembered for that innings. He was never a great ODI batsman. I think I was a, a guy that loved statistics growing up. I would often look at Steve Waugh's batting average in Test cricket. It would often surpass 50 or hover around 50. In the ODI format, I'd, I think he averaged just barely over 30 with a strike rate of about 70 from memory. And he didn't score centuries. I know the South Africans, there's a famous line when, when Steve Waugh is batting and he gets, he gets to 50 in the Super 6 game against South Africa. And the South Africans bay him and say, have you, have you seen your record, mate? You've got one century in 36 50s. You're not going, you're not going far from here. <laughs> to which Steve Waugh then proceeds to score 120 um, and chase down South Africa's 271 in the Super 6 game, which is arguably going to go down as his best ODI innings. That Yeah, that's his best innings. Well, by far, yeah, in the ODI format. I can't remember of anything. I mean, the co- so my other hot seat was Herschel Gibbs because Herschel comes in to that, let's call it a, it's not a quarterfinal because by the time Australia played South Africa in that Super 6 game, South Africa had to qualify for the semifinal. And it was just merely a case of did they want to eliminate Australia but Herschel Gibbs takes a very simple catch and drops it and what does Steve Waugh say or what is he what is he rumored to have said allegedly he allegedly says you've just dropped the world cup mate and this is this is not a semi-final he's just talking about this in a super six game Australia's still got a few matches to win but they do 
that's that's the confidence in which Steve Waugh led. Did did he actually confirm whether he said that? Yeah, so he, he later on said that he never said those exact words. And Herschel Gibbs in his autobiography also says that Steve Waugh was a lover of the game and he never would disrespect the sport like that. And his exact words were something on the lines of... Um, you've dropped the match or something? Yeah, you've just, you've just cost yourself the match or something similar. So nothing on, along the lines of you've just dropped the World Cup, but <laughs> I think we just go along with that because it just makes a great story. It is. I'm just going to believe that he said that. And that drop was important because I think we were both talking about this before we started recording. There's a famous pre-match team meeting the Australians had the night before where Shane Warne is alleged to have told the team, guys, if you hit the ball and Herschel catches it, stay there because Herschel throws the ball very quickly and it might be that when he throws it, he drops the ball. Now, I find that really hard to believe that Warney said that the night before. Um, I, like, what would have convinced him that Herschel was going to do that? But it actually happened. And that's the reason Australia won the World Cup, pretty much. Because if Steve Waugh gets out there, Australia doesn't qualify for the semi-final. Totally. And I, I want to say RIP Shane Warne. Firstly, what a player, what a man and what a servant for Australian cricket. Mm. But you're totally right. Um, there's a lot of permutations and combinations here. Um, what could have happened, what might not have happened. But I think that has to be the, yeah. the biggest one. The other people I just wanted to mention in passing before we get into the top five moments, Tom Moody. And the reason I mention his name is, what the hell did Tom Moody do in that World Cup? Why did he deserve a spot? Well, I've got a story for you here because Tom Moody, and we know him also to be a cricket coach as well. He went on to coach Sri Lanka quite successfully. Um, even, you know, I, I think he's running around right now as a coach too. But he came into that Australian setup. Shane Lee and Adam Dale were two all-rounders that were actually playing the tournament. And Tom Moody came in halfway into the tournament um, and apparently the Australian dressing room wasn't liking the setup of how players weren't allowed to, to have a drink after the game. They weren't allowed to, um, they had curfews at night during the World Cup. And as you point, pointed out earlier, they were tired and they'd spent two and a half months on the road. And Tom Moody came into the setup and apparently told Steve Waugh that he wanted them to relax those restrictions. And he wanted the players to kind of have beers after the game and try and enjoy themselves. A few beers. And so as, as Steve Waugh you know, being the leader that he was, he adopted that straight away. And the Australian players, players credit their turnaround in that tournament after they lost to New Zealand and Pakistan to Tom Moody coming in and saying that, For hey, a let's, few have beers. A, let's have a beer <laughs> after the game. And I think that actually goes to the that point about how the Australian team were away from the away from home for so long. And probably it con they probably just needed something to relax them. And maybe it was just... Steve Waugh loosening those restrictions, which enabled them to relax a bit more and feel as if this wasn't the end of the world. And I suppose sometimes that's where you play your best cricket. You definitely need to be relaxed. I think Steve Waugh being a leader, he would often take the burden of the team in the test team. I know, you know, batting at number five, very important spot. He was a crucial part of the middle order, would, was the, num the number one Australian batsman for a significant period of time before Ricky Ponting really became who he was. So I think Steve Waugh took that mantelpiece. He was a late bloomer as a leader as well. You know, became captain in, in the early yeah. 30s. 
So he had a sense of responsibility that I think a lot of the other Aussie, Aussies in that team didn't. You know, Ponting was in his young 20s, Gilchrist as well. You know, other than Shane Warne and, and Glenn McGrath, which was still... McGrath was still making his way yeah. as well, a they, leader. Mark Wall opening as well. Mark Wall. We always forget Mark Wall and Steve Wall, both same age, but I always felt as if Mark Wall was the immature one. But it might just be because Mark Wall was more dashing and prepared to speak his mind a bit more, whereas Steve Wall was more reserved. Yeah, and we know Junior in the commentary boxes... Says know, whatever he wants. He really is liberal with his words. <laughs> but I don't mind it. Um, okay, we'll take a quick break and then we'll come back with top five moments. from Shane Warne, clipping the top of off stump. That's absolutely exactly what the Australians needed. And this is the perfect leg spinner. In drift, it pitches outside leg stump and hits the top of, top of off. We thought this wicket might turn. It's certainly turning. Top five moments. Going back to that context point, I think it's worth mentioning because people will look, if someone looks at this scorecard, they would say, what's all the fuss about? One team scored 213, the other team couldn't chase it, scored 213. What are we here? Why are we talking about this? Well, go back to that context point, 99, the one day game is very different. And you have to view scorecards in the 80s and 90s in that sort of lens, even the early 2000s. So. I would say that's one thing you should keep in mind when you look at scorecards is don't look at it with the with the mindset of, oh, this is today's game where everyone scores 350. You need to look at it in that time. My number five moment, Sanjay, it's got to be Sean Pollock's spell. He takes five wickets as a South African opening bowler and he removes the open, he removes Mark Wall very quickly. Sean Pollock never struck me as a great ODI bowler. I, I think you and I both view him as one of these, you know, he was a test match bowler. He would never give much away. He didn't have the height of a McGrath, but he was always bowling line and length. And that's how he'd get you out just through frustration. But he bowled a fantastic spell. This is one of the great, this, he might've been man of the match had South Africa won. I agree. Five for 36, Sean Pollock. Also 20 of 14 with the bat which we can get to was, yeah. I think, a crucially important innings at the time where he actually came in ahead of Zulu, yeah. Lance Kluzner. Which we'll get to, but yeah. Which was a big, I think, tactical move that they made. But he was an all-rounder that I think deserved a little bit more respect. We talk about the greatest all-rounders mm. to play the game. You know, He's but, not really mentioned in that category. Do you... How, how would I, but how would you view Sean Pollock's career? When, if I say Sean Pollock, what do you say? 2003 World Cup World Cup when he captained when he captained so you're, you're you don't even remember him disappointment as one of, right because I think he is has ended up being an underrated bowler he takes five wickets he they're all five great wickets he's the best bowler on the park uh, maybe the number four would argue with that but I think he, he gets, he, it's an injustice to Sean Pollock that his career is not remembered for what it was. He averaged 24 with the ball in ODI cricket and averaged less than that in test cricket. This spell was nothing different. It just might be that he never won in Australia, which might be why 
Australian analysts or we view him differently. Whereas I'd be interested to speak to someone in South Africa and see how he's viewed in South Africa. But he's my number five, Sean Pollock. Yep. Number four, Alan Donald. So I'm talking about Alan Donald for the bowling. Clearly the, the batting we will talk about and the ramifications <laughs> of what happened there, which is probably why he's remembered by most people, unfortunately. But Alan Donald, white lightning, takes four wickets, he exerted a lot of control and it was a it was a spell that probably should have won South Africa the game. For sure. I think both of us, when we think of Alan Donald, and I know we had an autobiography that we both read from Michael Atherton, an English great, opening batsman, captain. Do you know he, what it was called? Is it opening up? Opening up, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great read for anyone. Yeah. Um, but in that autobiography, Michael Atherton points out that his quickest ever spell of bowling that he's ever faced was against the white lining, Alan Donald. He was jumpy. He was jittery. He didn't know how to play the short ball. Donald's bouncer was deadly accurate too. He would, because if you look at his action, he bowls very sh straight on into the wicket. He doesn't mm -hmm. come on with an angle that much. He puts, he bowls seam up. And he hits, he hits the deck really hard. So his bouncer kind of climbs very, very quickly onto you. And that's what yeah. he points out. I think he was underrated. He was, I think, regarded as the fastest bowler of yeah. his generation. I mean, 99, but, he's coming, he's getting a bit older. You, as a batsman, you had to give it, you had to respect his bowling. And that's what happened. He, he, he took four, Pollock took five. They're the primary reasons why they were able to limit Australia batting first. They had to be my number five and number four. No, number three, it's Michael Bevan and Steve Wars innings. They come in under a little bit of duress, similar to what happened in 96 when Australia played, I think in the semi-final, Australia played West Indies and Virash and I spoke about the innings that Bevan and Stuart Law played to save the game. Well, Steve Waugh and Michael Bevan play another rescue act. It gets them to a position where they were able to even score above 200, but they're probably the reasons why Australia was in the game. I think there's an eerie symmetry between both of these innings. South Africa start off really well, mm. none for 48. Australia start off really well. They're about one for 50-odd. Ricky Ponting's hitting it all over Yeah, you know, against Steve, Steve Elworthy. <laughs> um, and then suddenly Australia reduced from a Pollock spell to about four for 65-odd and Bevan and War in the crease. Similarly with the South African innings, they're four for 61. And then John T. Rhodes and Jacques, Jacques Carlos come into the middle mm. and they both have similar endings. But I think the Australian partnership between Bevan and War, I don't think Bevan gets enough credit really for his innings. I think he got 65. He was the top scorer. Of yeah, the game. Uh, nobody talks about Bevan's innings, but it. But that's a classic Bevan innings because Bevan, I think in his career, probably had seven or eight sixes in his whole career. He never hit a six, and all he would do is just nudge. He knew how to break, uh, pierce the gap, get one or two, and put pressures on, put pressure on the fielders. That's what he did yep. in this game, and that's what Steve Waugh did. They both came in, they gave Australia a chance. And when you say that, I think Warren said, just give me something to bowl at. Yeah. Let, let me bowl at something. And Steve Warren and Bevan Julie obliged. But if Warren says, give me something to bowl at, that's, I don't think Steve was listening to that and saying, yeah, okay, I need to, I need to <laughs> score some runs so Warren can bowl at something. But that partnership, and particularly Bevan's innings, as you said, I thought how, was, a top, was a top moment. My number two, it's Shane Warren's bowling spell. And the reason why I've got it as my number two 
is it's 213. And I want to talk a little bit about Shane Warne here um, because Shane, Shane Warne's spell here comes at a very interesting time because he was actually not performing that well in this 99 World Cup. His head was all over the place. He was just... His relationship with Steve Waugh was also destroyed because basically from, I think it was a year or two prior, Shane Warne was dropped from the fourth test of the West Indies test series in West Indies. And he spoke about the conversation he had with Steve Waugh in that fourth test when Steve Waugh said to him, mate, you're not in form. We're going to go with McGill. And Warne said, just give me a chance you know, I always perform on the big stage. When it counts, it counts now. I'll be able to do it. And Steve Waugh ignored that. He had already made up his mind. And I think there was a, like Steve Waugh talks about it in his book that we've both read. I think it's his captain's diaries. And no he spoke, regrets. No regrets. And he, uh, it's well, well worth reading. It's not a long book, but it's well worth reading because it gives his perspective after each day, after each series. But he talks about it and I think he'd said he, he had made up his mind. And I think there was a little bit of ego at play where I think War wanted to show he was the captain and if he made a decision, he was going to stick by it. But that dropping of Shane Warne destroyed their relationship and also destroyed Warne's psyche for a little bit where Warne was now feeling as if, what's his place in the team? So prior to that semifinal, Warne, uh, Robin Smith talks about Warne perhaps floating the idea that he would retire from the game because he, he'd had shoulder injuries, he wasn't sure of his place in the team. He'd had this family. It, he'd missed the birth of his second child. His head's all over the place. And I think that context really builds up what he achieved. And you can see the the pure emotion in the wickets that he takes in that semifinal. It's something I've never... Like, when I think of Warren and I think of how he took his wickets and how he would celebrate, I never saw more raw emotion and joy than I saw in that semifinal. You're definitely right. And you nailed a lot of these points here. But one thing I would like to say is that Warren getting dropped from the team against West Indies. I mean, who doesn't get dropped after getting absolutely smashed by Brian Lara to all parts of the park? I but mean, the best spin bowler in the world. He's the best spin bowler. But against Virosh pointed out, Brian Lara is the best batsman that he's ever seen. You yeah. know, Brian Lara and his pomp in the West Indies and Caribbean, you really can't match that. Um, Warren was in, yes, he was in a rough patch. He'd had injury. We know that shoulder injury really stopped him from bowling the flipper. He stopped bowling that after afterwards. And I think Warren in the lead-up didn't have a great tournament. I think they talk about the game against India, which we, we know we lost. But um, two batsmen that we know, um, Robin Singh and Ajay Jadeja, they really tore apart Warren yeah. in that game. And Warren talks about that being like one of, one of his low points in the tournament. And then he comes back, does well in the Superskiss game against South Africa, but still not in a great headspace and the relationship with Wars fractured. So that just builds up to this performance, which we can get to, which is unbelievable. So he takes, he takes four wickets, right? But that wicket that he takes to remove Gibbs, I think that's, that's almost as good as the gadding ball. I mean, there's an argument whether it's better or not, but if anyone hasn't seen it, you can go on YouTube. I would highly recommend watching it on YouTube. Yeah, just type in Sanjay Ramaswamy, seven-year-old to Dilip in the backyard <laughs> and you will see that. that no, ball. I think your ball of century to me was a wrong'un. It was the wrong'un. It was the wrong'un. We're talking about, and you didn't get any drift, but 
because <laughs> we're playing in the garage. But um, no, I think the ball essentially you bought to me was in the garage, so it would have been hard to get drift. But that worn delivery, it he utilized for any leg spin lovers or spin lovers, he utilizes that drift so well because he he gets Gibbs's eye line. He's looking down the middle, and then Warren bowls it down the middle, but then it floats right, and then he gets enough spin that it beats Gibbs's bat, hits the off stump. Gibbs is mystified. He's thinking that Gilchrist, Gilly, has probably removed the bales behind him, only to see that Warren's bowled him, clean bowled. I think that's one of Warren's best balls he's ever bowled, and it changed the whole game because Gibbs was coming in trying to right a wrong from his dropped catch in the previous game, and it changed the whole complexion. The, the South Africa's run rate then just dropped significantly definitely so south africa setting the scene as you said none for 48 after 12 overs they need 213 they've got a batting lineup that goes to a nine and they've just got them past mcgrath yeah and you think mcgrath and fleming mcgrath and fleming and this bowling lineup has tom moody and mark war bowling 10 overs yeah if you think about it so all you do is get past Warren and you've won the game that's ridiculous that's it's it's a shocking bowling lineup for one of the great oh, ODI no, teams. poor rifle <laughs> we, we can get to Paul Rifle. But, Paul, yeah. But just setting the scene, I mean, Warren comes in and it's a do or die for Australia, basically. Yeah. Warp throws him the ball and says, you got to do it for me. They hate each other at this point. And Warren says, give it to me. And Gibbs is hitting it to all parts of the park. He just tons up against Australia four days ago. 101 of 130. It's regarded as a great knock. Yeah. Then he, then he carters McGrath and carters Paul Rifle six boundaries in the first 12 overs and Warren comes in and bowls him to your point pitching outside leg stump hitting the top of off stump it's a better ball I think than the Gadding ball yeah I mean that's an argument in itself I, look I still think Gadding's is better just because it had more drift and more turn and it's a first baller but Gibbs the Warren to Gibbs is also a first baller yeah it's a first baller but it's just outstanding he gets Gibbs removes Gibbs then he removes Kirsten with another beautiful ball Kirsten is the shocking shot. Yeah, it's shocking batting from from a great player like Gary Kirsten. And and then he removes he doesn't remove Cullinan, but he removes Hansi Cronje. Can I just say I get all the thing about Hansi Cronje being a great like he was a good captain. Let's put aside the match fixing. He was a great captain. He had some controversies in that World Cup with the earpiece. But Hansi Cronje did nothing with the bat. I've never seen him play a good innings. <laughs> I can't tell you of an innings from Hansi. So that's, I'm just going to leave that there. Can someone remind me of an innings that Hansi Konya played where uh, it's available on YouTube or um, <laughs> there's a link to it because I haven't seen it. But I do want to shout out one thing. Yeah. And that is obviously Daryl Cullinan coming in after Warren gets two wickets. He's Warren's bunny. And Warren talks about the fact that he needs to get fired up for any encounter. He needs the fire in him. And at that point, the fire was starting to belly up. And he quotes Alan Border, his favorite captain that he played under with Mark Taylor, is that when you need to pick a fight, pick a fight. And Warren, after the first ball, Daryl Cullinan just defends it back. Mm. And Warren gets the ball and throws it straight back at Cullinan's head mm. and walks back to his mark. And you know from that point that Warren's on. Like, he's already on, but he's on even, he's yeah. on even more. He doesn't need to get Cullinan out. Cullinan's psyched out. He gets run out. It's, from Michael Bevan, but it's a it's a moment which warns it's it's, it's the game it's the game. Yeah. It's almost it's it's almost Cullinan didn't want to face Warren, so it gets run out. And I know that's probably not what happened, but 
mentally when you watched Daryl Cullen and bat back then, it was almost like he didn't want to face Want. He was happy facing anyone else and he was a world-class batsman in his own right. When he came to Want, Want had the mickey on him. Um, that gets to me to my number one moment, Sanj. And, I, and I've got it as a number one. I'm calling it the final over. But before we get to the final over, we have to give some love to the Zulu, Lance Klusner, and what set this up. So South Africa, as you said, they start off well, Warren comes in, gets them down. Then they have a mini resurgence through John T. Rhodes, um, batting reasonably well, getting them, John T. Rhodes and Callis, getting them back into the game. But then they're batting very slowly because they're not able to hit anyone off the park. And they essentially need 75 runs off the last 10 overs and they're losing wickets. South Africa probably were the authors of their own misfortune here because they, the total that they had to chase, 213, was not a lot and they should never have had a run rate issue, but they made it a run rate issue by just not playing aggressive cricket during the middle, middle overs. And I think that's reflective or emblematic of South African cricket in general, which was when an opportunity presented itself to South Africa, they were never ones to aggressively take it by the horns. That's fair. And I think that's built upon the fact that they were such a good cricket team, so they were always ahead of the game. Yeah. So Steve Waugh says, famously in this game, Australia was in front for one ball of the entire game. And that mm. was actually when, when South Africa needed 16 off eight balls right. remaining in the game, and they only had a, a wicket to go. So South Africa was so far ahead... And to your point, they played Warren as if they were scared. So nine overs, four maidens, three for 12. Was, yeah. it, was his figures coming into the last over when he bowled the 45th? Yeah. And his last over. His yeah. last over. So John T. Rhodes and Jarkas clearly got, you know, a was, memo from Hansi to yeah. say that don't attack Warren and just play him out. Yeah. And, and that leads to this, the, the person that I want to really focus on, which is Lance Klusner. Lance Klusner prior to this semi-final was the player of the tournament. I think even without this innings, he might have been given the player of the tournament. He he was the perfect player for a South African team that was I would say they were the number one one day team at the time. They weren't they were they had come in with such great form. Bob, uh, was it Bob Woolmer was the coach for the team. He'd he'd given them a, such a strong um, belief that they were the best team and Klusner was this just magnetic electrifying player who would come in who could bat anywhere from one to eight or nine and would give you 10 overs with the ball I mean the one thing I remember with Lance Klusner is the fact that he had the biggest bat of anyone yeah. in the 90s a heavy bat like we know that Sachin obviously had the MRF bat and that yep. was thick as chips and no one else had any such bat. Like Steve yeah. Vaughan, Brian Lara obviously used the MRF too. But in the late 90s, yeah. it was Klusner with the thickest bat. He was obviously the strongest guy in the South African team, had the, the, the heaviest bat. So whenever he hit it, it would just go flying. South Africa coming to the final over, which is the number one moment. They need nine runs to win. So they're nine wickets down. And the two men at the crease are Lance Klusner, the Zulu, and Alan Donald. Fleming. He's given the last over. It's a lot of pressure for Damien Fleming. First ball, Fleming bowls. He bowls a full ball to Lance and Klusner just smashes it away through cover for four. Interesting story. The Steve Waugh 
um, they had pre- when they had analyzed Klusner's game, they said to Fleming, he said to Fleming, don't bowl on his legs. He's going to carve you up. So Fleming follows that advice, bowls it outside, and Klusner just smashes him through the off. First four. Mike Proctor and Bill Laurie are going crazy in the box. That's one thing I'll give credit to. I think Bill Laurie always uh, commentated, regardless of whether it was Australia or South Africa or any other team, he was impartial when he commentated. He just commentated for the love of the sport, which is why he sounds so excited in this final over. Kluzner hits a four. Second ball, Australia's like, what's going on? He again bowls a full ball, and Kluzner just hits the ball along the ground past Mark. I think it was... I think it's Mark War hits another four. So what does South Africa need? South Africa needs one or four. Yep, Mark War on the boundary didn't move. Um, the Aussies on the field afterwards say that it's the fastest that they've ever seen a ball go to the boundary rope. It it's was that bat. It was the bat. Um, I've never seen anything faster. The crowd are going berserk. Bill Laurie and Mike Proctor, if you, if you just listen to this commentary, they both make so many errors actually when they're speaking yeah. because Bill Laurie thinks that um, Mike Proctor thinks that whoever wins this has basically won the final. He doesn't. He does. He doesn't. This re- was the final that for him. Pakistan awaiting the the yeah. winner of this, and then Bill Laurie accurately reminds him that the winner of this is if it's a tie, <laughs> then Australia win. Yeah. But then you know it's one of the great greatest moments I think in commentary history. Pause. Pause the boundary when they when Kluzner hits the second boundary and just watch Venkat Rag. So it's Venkat Raghavan and Dave Shepard as the two umpires. I think it's it's quite apt that those two were the umpires because they were the great umpires of the 90s. Yeah, um, no, yeah, no like, DRS, nothing. There's no DRS back then, but they were regarded, they, they were always happy to give an LBW, so they weren't they weren't reluctant LBW givers, but Shepard and Venkat Raghavan, I thought, were the two umpires, standout umpires of the 90s. Yep. So it's quite apt that they umpired this game, but Venkat Raghavan, you look at, when he gives, when he does the four sign, He's, he's almost caught up in the emotion of what's going on. Because you have to understand, South Africa almost down and out with three or four overs to go. Australia probably, as what War said when they needed 16 off 80, probably was the one time where Australia felt they were on top and should have won. Then nine down, they can't lose another wicket and Clusen is just hitting missiles from anywhere and everywhere. Yeah, so famously, Damien Fleming, to your point, comes around the wicket... Um, Bowls these balls outside off stump. So Kluzner has no chance to hit it. He smokes them for two fours. Then Fleming goes to War and says, I hate this tactic. I don't know what I'm doing. And then War nods his head. So he goes over back over the wicket. And War brings the field up. War b- brings the field up. And Fleming actually bowls, I think, the worst ball of the over yeah. is that third ball. It's The worst ball. He, he bowls his worst ball. But Kluzner, probably in that adrenaline and excitement, just doesn't, is not able to hit it. Yeah, I think um, he's well surprised how bad the ball is. Yeah. And that third ball shapes the, the fourth ball because the third ball, Donald, in his excitement, starts running. He's backing up like a he's monster. He's backing up. Does, doesn't really follow Clusen's instructions. Wasn't really, I don't know if he's looking at the ball. He's looking at the bat. He just runs. Should have been run out, but they miss a run out chance. And you have to remember that because now Donald's mind is about, oh, I need to be careful here. I better stay in my crease because I can't be run out. I can't be the reason South Africa loses the game. And we, the one point we missed, because it's not a top five moment, but we, I just want to give him a shout out. Paul Rifle, how about his fielding? Drop catch. And then 
in the third last over just um, catches it then throws it over the boundary for another six so I mean pistol rifle what has he done right in this game he also drops callus as well unbelievable um, rifle was horrendous in, he was he was horrible he he would have given been given the Alan Donald treatment had South Africa won definitely but yep. you have to picture this the, the third ball they don't get a run if you're a South African fan you're thinking well we've got three more balls to go we are fine that's just a, a, a miss hit. And if you're an Australian fan, you're thinking, okay, well, we had a chance there to get a run out, but these guys haven't won a big game in a long time. In 96, they just lost to West Indies. They've won every group game. In 92, rain killed them, but they haven't done anything. So we've still got a chance here. And I think that's what War told his team. And it's interesting what they should have done. And Robin Smith talks about this. What South Africa should have done was, Cluzen should have come to the middle of the pitch, spoken to Donald and said, let's breathe, let's relax. This is what I want to do for the fourth ball, fifth ball. Let's let's talk, but they didn't do that. They immediately went back without consulting each other and just said, let's get this done. And I think that's what caused the run out in the next ball. If you watch the fourth ball, that run out famous, I think my, my, pure, my belief is that they would have made the run had Alan Donald run and followed Cluzen's signal. But because Donald was watching the ball and not watching the batsman and it wasn't his call, that's why they got run out and resulting in the most stunning draw in one day World Cup history prior to 2019. Oh, definitely. Um, the, the one quote for me from this article that you talk about, which I think is one of the best um, articles as well, is this. So this is after the third ball where Donald doesn't run and is just missed out on the run out from Darren Lehman. Darren Buff Lehman did Buff. nothing in the tournament, but batted <laughs> four for Australia. So the, the quote is, Donald, his heart, a drum and bass track, looked up with the guilty smile of a man who had avoided a firing squad under technicality. At this point, even Warren, the man who never gave up, gave up. And I think that's really important because Australia probably thought they had no chance to win this. That third ball was the chance. They missed the run out. You're bowling to the best batsman in that situation at the time, Lance Zulu Klusner. It's a surprise that Australia didn't actually give the ball to McGrath. He had bowled out at that point. Yeah. Which I think was Steve War's captaincy, trying to be very aggressive, front foot captaincy, trying to get the best bowlers to get the wickets at the time. And it almost worked. They had him nine down. They had him nine down, but South Africa arguably should have won this. I, I think if Klusner needed four off three balls, South Africa would have won because when he needed one, his whole game changed. The legacy of this match, I think we'll all remember it, but the Wisden Cricketers Almanac opened its report of the match with, quote, this was not merely the match of the tournament. It must have been the best one-day international of the 1,483 matches so far played. The essence of the one-day game is a close finish, and this was by far the most significant to finish in the closest way of all, with both teams all out for the same score beautiful alan donald he wasn't actually able to get over that incident for a time he actually is quoted as saying i needed therapy to get over it i couldn't watch it i couldn't talk about it but i got over it it's become part of me he resorted to a well-known technique called flooding and that's where traumatic or anxiety provoking images are played on repeat until they are no longer debilitating wow so he actually had to see a therapist and the basically told him, watch, the, watch your run out 
500 times <laughs> so that you're desensitized to it. What and that reminds me of is obviously the Ashes um, and Justin Alfie Langer getting the Aussies to rewatch. Yeah, but they watched it once. They watched it once, but I mean, that was pretty painful. Yeah. I mean, it's a similar kind of dynamic. Ashes, you know, 2 1 up, I semi final of the World Cup. And Kaluzan actually speaks about this semi-final and the criticism that was drawn towards Alan Donald and to him to some extent. And he says, I didn't feel guilt and I don't think Alan should, when he's talking about Alan, he's talking about Alan Donald and I don't think Alan should either. It was never his job to get the runs. It probably wasn't my job either. We only had to chase 213. The top six batters are who we have to ask questions about. It's easy enough to look at Alan and myself, but I think the real questions of that World Cup need to need to be aimed at the batting unit for not scoring enough runs. That really was the problem. I mean... That's telling. Clues, and I think Kluzner feels that way because his whole career has probably been wound down to this moment and not being able to get South Africa over the line. And he's right. The South African team should have been able to chase 213, but they weren't able to. And that's probably because of the batting. Yep. Crazy record South Africa did have coming into the tournament. I think under Bob Woolmer, they had won three to one in terms of their win to loss records. The 75% win loss record. They just smashed Australia in 98 Commonwealth games. Yeah. They were the best ODI team by far. And that dressing room that you talk about at the end, it makes sense because there's one more quote that I want to give you. The scene in our dressing room resembled that of a refuge in the midst of a natural disaster, wrote Woolmer in his warmer on cricket. My goodness. I want to quickly go through a couple of stats. Would you believe that? Kluzner, man of the series, we spoke about it. I know I already told you this, but he was only dismissed twice that tournament. He didn't get out because he wasn't run out in the final, in the semifinal. Do you know how Kluzner got his Zulu nickname? So he was, in, I think it was in the, in the, in the early 90s, he was in the Natal province where he was playing his cricket. Um, the overseas player at the time was Malcolm Marshall the late great Malcolm Marshall for the West Indies, who was, for all those who don't know, was a, an unbelievable fast bowler, and also a very handy lower batsman who would smash it around. And he saw uh, Lance Kluzner um, in action, um, and based off the province that he was playing at, nicknamed him Zulu. Because he couldn't, pr- he didn't want to pronounce Kluzner's last, last name. He didn't know how to. So he just called him Zulu, and there it is. Sanj, for the Don, I, I wanted to go not with the player, and I think Warren maybe has an argument for that being his dumping one, except for the last over, which somewhat ruined his figures. But I'm just putting Don as choking because I think this is the peak choke. I think when you look at South African cricket overall and you think, oh, what's the, when someone says choking, what's the example? I think I would go back to this 99 semi final because in 92 they were unlucky. In 96 they lost to Lara. In 2003 they lost to Rain. To, they lost to Sean Pollock, miscalculating the map. Miscalc- <laughs> that's pretty bad. But 99, they need one of four. They're chasing 213. I think that's the. this is the godfather of choking. So that's my Don Award. I agree with that. I also want to give the award an equal stint to the 2015 semifinal as well against New Zealand. Oh, where yeah. In, in, Grant Elliott yeah, hitting pack. 90-odd of 70 balls. Dale Stain crying on the field. Yeah. Afterwards, South Africa really should have won that game. I mean, they technically won it. Grant Elliott was South African, wasn't he? (laughs) (laughs) I want to finish with this, Sanj. When this gets released, hopefully part of the World Cup will still be going on. And 
I spoke about this with Viros briefly, but one day cricket is struggling a little bit to garner the excitement that it once did. Are there any changes you would make to the one day game to keep it alive for the next 20 to 30 years? Such a tough question. Um, I've got to say, I wasn't a massive fan of Virosh's idea because I just I, I don't think it's going to be very easy to implement a dual structure. Yeah, where briefly, you have Northern did, Hemisphere what, what was, teams. What was Virosh's idea? I think like having an Asian system, yep. like the Asia Cup, and then having one overseas team coming in to play that tournament, right. and then likewise an Asian team going over to the Northern Hemisphere. I think I do love the 50 over format for the World Cup. I think we got to reduce the number of ICC tournaments in general. Mm. So, you know, right now we used to have a champions trophy, you know, we used to have um, a certain other cups that they played for, which were very meaningless cups. I think if you have the, the World Cup every four years, for bilateral tournaments, I want the bilateral tournaments to just be test series mm. and 2020 series. I don't want ODIs to be part of it because I want the TV guys and I want the broadcasters of both nations to get the money from T20 cricket but I also want test cricket to have a minimum three test series every time a team plays, unless it's a Bangladesh, New Zealand test series. <laughs> so for ODIs, yeah. I would restrict it to just the World Cup and I would potentially, if they wanted to have an Asia Cup every two years, I would do that. And then if they want to have like a, a Northern Hemisphere Cup, I would, I would allow that, but I don't want any bilateral series between the 50 over tournaments every four years. Right. I think it's going to be hard for one day cricket to survive regardless of whatever changes you make. And I say that because I don't think cricket fans or new cricket fans have the patience to sit through 2020 cricket, one day cricket and test cricket. There's just too much cricket consumption. Agreed. And I think IPL has had a positive impact on garnering new fans of the game, BBL as well, but it is attracting a fan base that is only interested in a shortened form of cricket. And I don't think it has achieved the perp. It has not achieved the objective of bringing fans in that are still able to admire the longer formats of the game. So we're seeing these fans able to withstand maybe a three hour game, but then the one it's not converting into ODI cricket and ODI cricket struggling as a result in Australia, for example, we don't have it on free to wear TV. It's not available, but so I, my view is, if you're just going to have World Cups or, and a Champions Trophy, for example, make it every two years and allow in the two months prior to the World Cup for any bilateral series to take place as a warm-up. Yep. But if you have it every two years, then at least there's some urgency to it. There's, there's something you can look forward to in the one-day game. Every four years, without playing any bilateral series, I think will kill the game because... Players are getting no practice in that longer form. You can't play 2020 cricket to become a good one-day cricketer, in my view. It requires a different skill set, and you can't play test cricket to be a good mm -hmm. one-day cricketer. So I don't know if four years works. I think you have to, if you're going to remove bilaterals, you need to um, bring it to a World Cup every year or every two years. I, that sounds weird, but you need to have that. That's the only way in which the game, the game will survive. But... Yeah, I, I don't mind your idea, and, and I know Virash is going to be listening, so he's he's going to have some words with you about whether why why you don't agree with him. Thank you, Sanj. Uh, for anyone listening, they'll know Sanj and I are going to be doing a few more episodes coming up in the next few weeks. We're going to do one on Arsenal, the Champions League 2006 final between Arsenal and Barcelona, and we're also going to look back at the 1999 conveniently called Tour of Shame between Australia and India. 
the test series that we'll cover. So thanks for listening, Sam, and I'll see you soon. Thanks for having me.